Welcome to Podcast Palestine, The War on Gaza, a special podcast from the Cairo Review of Global Affairs, where we talk to policymakers, experts, and academics about how the war in the Gaza Strip is unfolding and the prospects of a political endgame. I'm Nadine Shaker. Last month, South Africa brought charges against Israel for violating the Genocide Convention in the course of its war on Gaza. South Africa said that as a party to the convention, it had a responsibility to prevent genocide and asked the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, to order provisional measures to protect the rights of Palestinians. The court then held two public hearings in The Hague on January 11 and 12, hearing arguments from both sides. As attempts to end the war have failed in the Security Council, what power does the ICJ have over changing the course of the war? And what impact could a positive ruling for provincial measures mean? I'm joined today by Jason Beckett, Associate Professor of Law at the American University in Cairo. This interview was recorded on January 23, 2024. Uh, let me begin by asking you if you can tell us the story of the term genocide how it came into legal discourse, and why it's become such a loaded term in international law. Leading up to this case, I know there's a, a lot to cover, but how is it important in understanding the South Africa versus Israel case that is before the ICJ today? Okay, um, so I'm going to take those two questions separately. There's a, a question on the history of genocide, and there's a question about the court. And I don't necessarily think that they're related to one another. Why do you feel that? So genocide as a term came into being in the mid-1940s. It was coined by a Jewish international lawyer called Raphael Lemkin. And it was the term was coined as a direct response to the Holocaust. In 1948, under the auspices of the UN, there was a convention adopted on the prevention and the punishment of the crime of genocide. And this feeds into a certain mythology about the Holocaust. And I always want to be careful when I'm talking about the Holocaust. I'm not a Holocaust denier, but I do deny the singularity of the Holocaust. So the word genocide was created in the mid-1940s. And it feeds into this mythology that the Holocaust was a break, a rupture in history. It was a moment of unique evil. But the only thing that was really unique about the Holocaust was that it took place in Europe against an arguably white population. Famously, in its rule over the Congo, Belgium killed about 10 million Congolese natives. British rule in India killed over 30 million Indian natives. British invasion and indirect rule in China killed another 30 million Chinese natives. So what I want 
to say is two things. One, obviously, that genocide is horrible. But two, that it's wrong to say that genocide is rare or unique. So genocide, for me, has this mixed history. And this is true of the law of international law, that there's an apparent break that we postulate in the 1940s with the creation of the UN and the articulation of modern humanitarian law. And that is framed as a response to the unique event of the Holocaust. So everything starts again in 1945. We reset to be an ethical world. And then there's the whole other colonial history of international law. And, you know, the very simple fact that we never talk about, that the UN was created by the colonial empires. It was created by the colonial states for the colonial states. So there are very, very different continuities that are very much in contrast to the happy narrative of international law. Now, coming to the South African case, the reason that I say there's no particular connection is that I don't believe that court cases are determined by law, especially in international law. So I have a fundamental belief that international law is radically indeterminate. You can use it to make any argument. So just going to say whatever meaning legally wouldn't apply because of this indeterminacy. It applies, but it can be argued either way, that it happened or that it didn't happen, that it is genocide or that it isn't genocide. Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe something I should mention about this ICJ case is that South Africa didn't choose the charge of genocide to be spectacular or provocative. The ICJ is an unusual court. And in particular, states can only be taken before the ICJ if they have previously agreed to its jurisdiction. And there are two ways that a state can agree to the ICJ's jurisdiction. One is a general declaration saying we accept the jurisdiction of the ICJ in all cases where the other party also accepts the jurisdiction of the ICJ in all cases. So the other option is that they are party to a treaty that grants jurisdiction to the ICJ. Yeah, the, the Genocide Convention. And the Genocide Convention is one of the rare treaties that grants automatic jurisdiction to the ICJ. So we can say without a doubt, despite what I said about the indeterminacy of international law, we can say without a doubt that Israel is committing war crimes. Mm. We can say without a doubt that Israel is committing crimes against humanity. But there's no court that has jurisdiction to hear those charges. 
So the mm. International Criminal Court will investigate those charges, but in relation to specific Israeli officials. Right. Individuals, not states. Mm. Whereas the ICJ, yes, determines the responsibility of Israel, the state. And you'd mentioned something interesting that South Africa didn't mean for genocide or bringing that claim to be spectacular. Um, can you elaborate more on that? You know, what I mean is it was the only treaty that they could use to give the ICJ jurisdiction. The problem with charging genocide is that you need to prove two things. You need to prove genocidal conduct and you need to prove genocidal intent. Genocidal conduct is clearly occurring in Gaza. Hmm. You know, we read, I read that 26,500 Gazans have been killed. And obviously that's horrible. But I also hate the reporting because I think it's inaccurate. 26,500 Gazans have been recorded dead. It doesn't count the dead in the rubble. It doesn't probably count those dying of disease and starvation. So the number actually killed in Gaza is probably nearer 40,000. We've seen a deliberate attacking of civilian property, deliberate attacks on civilian infrastructure like bakeries, water processing plants, we're seeing the denial of water, the denial of fuel, the denial of food, the denial of medical care. I mean, it is honestly a miracle in my view that only 40,000 Palestinians have died so far. Everything is in position for a major disease outbreak. The people are starving. They have limited access to water. They're surrounded by sewage. The rains are coming. Much of the water they do have access to isn't actually drinkable, but they have to drink it anyway. Their immune systems are seriously compromised. And they're all packed together in one dense, massively overcrowded area. The has been designated safe and is still being bombed on a daily basis. So the, the conduct is clearly genocidal. But the tricky legal question is whether Israel intends to be genocidal. So it's only genocide if it's done with the specific intent to destroy in whole or part a racial, religious, or ethnic group. And Israel's argument is that they have no intention of destroying the Palestinians or the Gazans. Their only intention is to destroy Hamas. But of course, earlier in the war, closer to the uh, October 7th attacks, the Israeli p 
political and military elite were much less guarded in the statements that they were making. And, you know, it's interesting that particularly since this case was initiated, official Israeli rhetoric has been very much toned down. Yeah, we noticed. <laughs> I came across today uh, a quote by Itmar ben Gavir, who's always good for a quote. Um, and, and he said, Today, we must continue to subdue, crush, and mow down the Nazi enemy in Gaza with all our might. So, I mean, he's pretty clear. He may not be official, but he's pretty clear that this is a genocide. Yeah, now, it continues. I have to say two things that slightly contradict. One is that international law is indeterminate. But two, in this particular instance, it's probably biased towards Palestine. So because international law is indeterminate, the advocates at the court have two basic tasks. They have to present the judges a plausible legal argument in their favor, and they have to give the judges a reason to want to accept the argument. To me, the South Africa pleading was stronger. But my sympathies lie with the Gazans. So I was always going to be more sympathetic towards the, the South African pleading. But the Israeli pleading, particularly on the procedural elements, was very competent. Well, can you... You know, tell us more what you mean by on the procedural elements. How was it stronger? Okay, so Israel argued a number of different things. They argued that the court did not have jurisdiction. They argued that the remedies requested by South Africa were beyond the court's competence or had been turned down in similar cases by the court before. Which is to neutralize Hamas, so, um, you know, bringing back the argument of self-defense that this is, yeah. this is what's the right, basically. Yeah, so for example, self-defense is a good one. But they said, if you demand a ceasefire, you're denying us our right to self-defense. And worse than that, you're not telling Hamas to cease fire because the court has no jurisdiction over Hamas. Hamas, because mm. it's not a state. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very technical argument. There's a very technical response, which I wish was articulated more in the media, which is that according to the International Court of Justice, in the case concerning the Israeli apartheid wall, they call it the separation wall, the court ruled that Israel could not act in self-defense in the occupied territories, that as the occupier, they had no right of self-defense. This was uh, brought up in the, in the hearing? I think it was, yes. So 
if that is true, and as I say, the court have already said that, um, then Israel actually has no right to self-defense in Gaza. We're talking about this whole thing in the wrong framework. As I said, both sides did their job competently. So it is now entirely down to the politics and or the legal beliefs of the 17 judges involved. I think it's almost certain that it will be a split decision and there will be a very strong dissent from the losing side. Okay, let me say one last thing before I forget, uh, which is the thing that contradicts my indeterminacy argument. So the case right now is what's called a provisional measures case. And this case isn't designed to establish whether Israel has committed genocide or not. What South Africa has to establish is that there's a plausible argument that Israel is committing genocide. Now, in both the Myanmar, uh, Gambia-Myanmar case and Ukraine-Russia cases, the court has held plausibility to be a very low standard. So if they follow their own prior decisions, and there's no guarantee they will, but if they do, then they ought to find in favor of South Africa. No, I, I thought what you said about, you know, how different cases before approached the plausibility um, issue differently and sort of held it to a lower standard because, you know, the situation was so urgent. Um, and one of my questions was, do you think that might happen again? Um, and it possibly can, but also if we return to the question of judges um, and, you know, the biases of the ICJ that exist from before, um, do you think that, you know, nationalities of the judges or other political considerations might influence the outcome? The short answer is yes. Um, the long answer is it's more complicated than that. So if we start from my initial premise that international law is indeterminate, then international law itself, by definition, cannot determine the decision. So something else determines the decision. But that something else is unique to each judge based on you know, their background, their upbringing, their specific form of legal education, their personal politics, their ethics. Um, so it's not, I think, that judges are direct representatives of their state but they're still not applying the law. They're still applying their own intuition and then reverse engineering a legal argument that makes that intuition seem determined by law. Okay. Um, you mentioned something really interesting before, um, which is like in this rare case, results of the provisional measures 
my creative space for international law to move past this colonial origins, which you mentioned earlier and you also mentioned in an interview with the Cairo View. Um, what would that mean, like, you know, for this case to be aided or, you know, for international law in general, if we look at the bigger picture, uh, to be aided by the, you know, occasional win for the oppressed? What would, um, you know, a favorable outcome mean in general? Okay, so I think there are a couple of things to say here. One is that I wouldn't overstate the radicality of a South African victory. Um, and two is that I wouldn't overstate the importance of a South African victory. So, as you mentioned in my analysis, international law is a colonial or now neo-colonial enterprise. And I don't think that this case challenges that in any way. You know, on the 6th of October 2023, Israel was a settler colonial apartheid state, and international law didn't care because it was a well-behaved settler colonial apartheid state. On the 7th of October 2023, Israel became a settler colonial apartheid state that was attacked by the natives. And by the 8th of October 2023, Israel was a settler colonial apartheid state openly engaged in genocide. Now, that's the change. Not the problem is not that there is a settler colonial apartheid state. It's whether they're a well-behaved settler colonial apartheid state or not. And all this case is saying is you've transgressed the boundaries of what states are allowed to do. It's not challenging the settler colonial nature of Israel. The court has no power to decolonize Israel. Um, there's potentially more, it's very unlikely, but there's potentially more radicality, oddly, in the International Criminal Court. So the International Criminal Court can investigate war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. But one of the crimes against humanity that they could choose to investigate, I don't think they will, but they could choose to investigate, is apartheid itself. Now, if Israeli leaders were to be imprisoned for running an apartheid state, that would be a much deeper challenge to the logic of international law. The second problem with the ICJ, and the reason I say the decision isn't very important, is that it won't be enforced. 
So it won't actually change Israeli conduct. The only question, and it's a very vague hope, a very distant hope, is whether it would impact American thinking. You know, America have come out strongly on Israel's side, but they've done it at a factual level. They've done it by saying these claims are baseless. These claims are meritless. So they're not saying these claims are not important. No one can say a charge of genocide isn't important. So if the court then find that that charge is plausible, then it's harder for the US to say, we want to support Israel, but we're against genocide. Yeah, yeah. Always comes back to the US, doesn't it? With Israel in particular, <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening to Podcast Palestine, The War on Gaza, and to my guest, Jason Beckett. This episode was produced by myself and by the Cairo Review's Deputy Senior Editor Omar Ouf and Associate Editor Abigail Flynn. Let us know what you thought of this episode and share your feedback with us on social media. You can read a full transcript of this interview on the Cairo Review website. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Salam.